Welcome to What Magnificence with Chase Thornock, where we help high-achieving executives and entrepreneurs find answers to their most vexing health problems through the power of what if. Now, here's your host, Chase. Hey guys, welcome to What Magnificence. This is Chase Thornock. We're glad to have you here today. Uh, my what if for you to consider today comes from Young Pueblo. And you're probably going to hear a lot of these. I found this author. He's a New York Times bestseller. I think I mentioned that. But he, he's the author of Inward. And this book's Clarity and Connection. And I feel like I just flipped through the pages. And every page I hit, there's something awesome. So if you hate these, just skip ahead. But Young Pueblo is awesome. <laughs> so he says, ask yourself, is this how I actually feel? Or is this just my emotional history trying to recreate the past? I'll read it again because I added a jest. So it says, ask yourself, is this how I actually feel? Or is this my emotional history trying to recreate the past? And that's actually really useful. What if? What if What if your, your mind is using your history, your emotional history, to recreate the past and make that your present and your future? And in today's discussion, I'm super excited to have April Davis here with me today. April is a certified social worker, and she's working on her licensure to become a licensed clinical social worker, which I understand is 4,000 hours. Is that right, April? Yeah, yeah, 4,000 clinical hours. I don't know that I've spent 4,000 hours doing anything. <laughs> that feels like I've a spent really 4,000 hours doing therapy. So, <laughs> yeah. Good for you. And you survived it. In my life. That's yeah. impressive but to it's, me. It's, it's my passion. So, that's great because it's become my passion. Well, and you're you're helping a lot of people, myself included. Uh, so oh, thank you. Those four thousand hours have, uh, have, have that makes grad that makes grad school worth it. Just to hear that. <laughs> so. so today we're going to be using some of this this thought that young Pueblo have right of of is our is our past trying to recreate our present and our future. And we're going to talk about it in the lens of therapy. And specifically today, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. So I think for a lot of people, if, if they haven't forayed into the therapy world, this is probably the first step that they take. Do you think? Uh, yeah. A social worker uh, or a therapist and say, let's, they end up doing cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, that is hands down the most common type of therapy when an individual seeks psychotherapy, whether that's through an LCSW, um, LMFT, psychologist, the most common form is what's called cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. Okay. So for, for my audience, what can you, in a nutshell, what is, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. So a clinical definition of cognitive behavior therapy is it's, it's a type of psychotherapy where um, the therapist helps you identify negative belief patterns, negative thought patterns. Um, you know, again, that is a result typically of, of your conditioning and lived experience um, and their negative patterns. We call them, Kate, my cat does not like this. My cat does not like me being on the phone. She, she's picking up some vibes, right? She's like, hey, are you working? Sounds like my children. She's sitting here like hissing at me. Is she really? Like, yes. Excuse me. She I hates it. I know. I know. She's wanted nothing to do with me all morning. But okay. So cognitive therapy, um, 
Speaking of, she needs some therapy, but uh, yeah, right. there's so cognitive therapy is it's when you identify these negative ways or these these thinking patterns that we have, um, typically a result of our lived experience, right? It's kind of how we've been conditioned. Mm-hmm. And there are thought patterns about ourselves and about other people other people, they're commonly called to as, uh, or referred to as what's called thinking errors, okay. or thinking fallacies, irrational thoughts. Um, okay. And the idea is, if you can identify your negative thought pattern, you can also change unwanted behavior patterns. So it's drawing the link between our emotions, our thoughts, and how we behave in response to those thoughts. So maybe an example of this would be, I, I've had maybe an abusive boss at work, right? Someone here, she's yelled at me. Um, and so the next time I'm in a familiar situation like that, the, the goal of the therapy would to be to say, you know, um, what's the negative belief that you're having? Maybe something like I'm powerless in this situation, or I don't have control. Um, and then trying to work together to change that thought pattern right? Based mm-hmm. on conditioning to then address, hopefully a, a better outcome for that scenario. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, there is a psychotherapist um, that decades ago uh, identified, I'm going to say there's 14, about 14 different thinking fallacies. Um, things like shoulds, having like a really rigid idea of what should and shouldn't be happening. Um, Fairness, this idea that life should be fair. These are just a few examples, right? Hmm. Um, Personalization, making the assumption that other people's behavior have anything to do with us. So, but the, yeah, the list goes on. So I, and again, by you identify those thought patterns, you also identify the emotions that are related to those thought patterns and then challenge the thinking. Okay. So, okay. and it's usually done, not usually, it's always done through very traditional talk therapy, which is like laying on the couch. The therapist's office. Yep. Use it the on the lounge couch. chair. The therapist you, is in there. Your office doesn't have a lounge. You may no. want a lounge, though. Those are pretty, you know. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. So maybe taking a step back here. So that's kind of cognitive behavioral therapy in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. What What is the goal of therapy? Is, is the goal, I mean, obviously, I think the direct linkage is mental health, right? We talk about mental health. Yeah. But is there a goal for your physical health as well? Um, what, what do you see or... You know, the overarching goal of psychotherapy is, is really the, the goal of any therapy, which is wellness, right? Yeah. It's, um, it, it's progress. It's making improvement. And that looks different for everybody. For some people, it's that I, you know, I want to have a, a happier, healthier relationship with my spouse. Um, for others, it's you know, I've, I've battled depression for several years. It's, I, you know, everybody's got different, different goals for therapy, but, um, overall it's, it's making progress. It's about movement, progress, change. And I think, I think in, uh, kind of, I don't know, this is more of a Western philosophy, but we've, we've found a lot of value. And I think rightly so in separating out, uh, bodies, right? Separate, separating out people, separating out our minds and our bodies, and then what parts of our bodies are affected. And, and as a kind of a result of that pathway, we, 
we've ended up saying things like, is it mental health or is it physical health? But the truth yes. is the answer is yes, right? Yes. Mental, mental is physical. Yes. It's, and, a, it's a dialectic. It's an and in both, right? It's an and in both. Absolutely. Yeah. And fascinatingly enough, um, you know, you're, you're, the number of neurons in your brain there's a massive number of neurons in your brain, right? And in your central nervous system, but you have about five times as many neurons in, in your gut, in your enteric nervous system as you do in your spinal cord, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about mental health thinking it's in our heads, but your second brain's actually in your guts, in your intestines. Well, and how do you separate mental health from physical health when your brain is in your body? Right, right. right. Like your brain is your body. Your right. brain controls your body. You, you like, separate them and neither of them work. They cannot live without each other, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. We know this. We haven't figured that out yet, at least. Huh? So why would, um, so why would somebody look into cognitive behavioral therapy? If they're, you know, if they're saying, hey, my health's not doing well, mentally, physically, I'm doing poorly. Why, you know, why would they pursue, what are some of the benefits, I guess, of cognitive behavioral therapy? So um, kind of a two-part question. Why would somebody pursue it? I think that it's uh, for what I have found is that the general population, that's, what, that's all they know of therapy. They're not really pursuing it. It's just what's presented to them. That's what's demonstrated in the media. You right. know, that's, it, it's just, it's such a popular form. Um, you look back at some of the most um, famous psychotherapists, including Freud, and you know that's that's what that's what they did. Um, so a lot of people are very unaware of different types of therapy, and this idea of going and talking to a therapist and you know, quote unquote, just just talking mm -hmm. is what people expect. Again, that's related to our conditioning, right? That's what we've been conditioned to do. Even the therapists are conditioned to do this. Right. That's what we know of it. So um, that's usually what brings people in into therapy um, in, into or what they I should say what they expect when they come to therapy. Um, and most often, I would say that people seek some type of psychotherapy because there are, um, you know, depression being one of them, anxiety, but it's usually because it's their symptoms are starting to take a toll on relationships. Hmm. Um, it's starting to impact their family, their ability to hold down a job, um, friendships, you know, those kind of things. So the benefits of cognitive uh, behavior therapy, I think one of the biggest benefits is it, it creates some self-awareness. Mm, when we yeah. talked earlier about the, um, you know, the negative thought process, it's how often do we really stop and think about thinking right. and identify what our assumptions are, what our judgments are. Right. Um, but it's, it can be a very good place to start because so many of us live in our heads, right? It's, yeah. and, and you, there, there's a kind of a rule of thumb with therapy is you start where the client's at. Hmm. And if the client is convinced that it's all in their head and that they can think their way out of this or think their way into making some behavior changes, um, that's where you start. You start with the thought process. Right. So, so one concept I think that ties into this well that, that I've learned recently about is this idea of 
exiles, right? That we all have really sensitive parts of self um, based on conditioning and otherwise that when, when they are approached or attacked, right? We end up yeah. creating these managers to try to interact with that threat yeah. um, and, and diffuse it. And one of, those, one of those managers is an intellectual manager, right? Mm -hmm. Something, something that- uh... That's one of yours too. <laughs> You're right. That is one of the most powerful ones. And it's those managers are one, are some of the, because powerful in that they're rewarded and they're valued and they work. And, but it's also one of the most powerful managers to have to- to Get break to through, like step aside. Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. to meet, to meet and then ask yeah. to kind of, to kind of step aside. And I think, I think the fascinating thing about it, like you said, for me, it, that's where I was, right. I was very yeah. much intellectual and I want to solve this yeah. intellectually, but the and thing that's that, human nature, right? We, we want that's to the make tool. meaning. We yeah. want to make meaning. We want to make sense and we want to understand things. And with cognitive behavior therapy, it is, it gives you language. It gives you an understanding. It helps you see a linear process to your reactions, right? Yeah. So, I, because I mean, the, our cognition is a huge part of who we as human beings are, is our ability to critically think and perceive and put things into like narrative form, right? Uh, you know, I, and I often tell clients, in my experience, one of the most valuable coping skills a person can have is knowledge. Yeah. If I can explain this, if I can label this, right, then it seems a little less scary. Mm -hmm. it, it gives it a little bit more meaning. It normalizes things. It gives me some understanding, right? Great place to start. Yeah. Great place to start. Yeah. Well, and I think, and maybe we're kind of coming into some of the limitations because that, that's kind of my next question for you of cognitive behavioral therapy. But the, the fascinating thing, right, is that you talked about being able to critically think through the problem. And that is a tremendous solution after the fact. The thing that I learned in my experience and in my journey was that when there was a trigger based on my conditioning, there was a physiological response that I had mm -hmm. no control over, right? Yep. And generally yeah. that phys physiological response included adrenaline and uh, you know, stress hormones, cortisol. And I was experiencing this feeling and my ability to critically think basically goes to zero. Yeah. My perception of my ability to think did not change, right? And that created this really kind of caustic situation yeah. for me where I thought I was thinking clearly, Right. And I clearly wasn't and being influenced by the chemicals in my body. Right. Right. Because that intellectual manager, right. That's our go-to and that's what we want to use to solve the problem over and over and over again. But like I mentioned earlier, you know, with cognitive behavior therapy, that link between emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. Well, what happens when there's not a thought or what happens when there's not an emotion? Mm. Right. And because we know that when, a response is triggered when our amygdala is fired, that doesn't, we, it, it, sometimes this happens subconsciously and there isn't that cognitive awareness, right? I mean, that's and the definition so some, of conditioning, right? It is subconscious. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Is what happens when any of those get bypassed. Maybe I get triggered and I don't get scared. Maybe I get a stomach ache. Hmm. What happens when I get triggered and I don't, feel anger, 
but I get a massive headache instead. And so part of our conditioning can be that we learn how to suppress emotions. And like you had mentioned, when we're really in this heightened emotional state, the first thing to go is our ability to think clearly. Our prefrontal cortex shuts down. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever dealt with somebody who's in the a fit of rage, you know, it's not, what is your negative cognition about yourself <laughs> right now? Like that doesn't work. It sure. doesn't, again, it helps after the fact, mm -hmm. but it doesn't stop that overwhelming physiological response that happens in the moment. And that's where the limitation to cognitive behavior therapy is. Yeah. In my, in my opinion. No, I, and again, I'm speaking from my personal experience, but I would, I would absolutely agree. I think, I think cognitive behavioral therapy is a great place to start. Like we mentioned, because it's where you are typically, right. Especially, mm -hmm. especially high achieving people. We solve problems with our frontal lobes. This is how we solve the yeah. problem. But when we're having that response, and, and I, I want to point this out too, you know, you talked about being able to inhibit our emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And it's dissociative, right? Mm -hmm. It's the ability to disconnect from what we're feeling. Um, however, we can't disconnect from the chemicals that are entering our system, right? right. And you also right. can't disconnect from the physiological issues that you start to develop. And this is akin to me of like needing to go to the bathroom. You can ignore it mm -hmm. for a little bit, right? But the body will always, it, there's that book, the body keeps the score, right? The mm -hmm. body will keep the score. And eventually, <laughs> if you continue to ignore it, right? If you yeah. continue to ignore needing to use the restroom, you're going to have a yeah. problem because the body's you're, like, what do you want me to right, do? Right. We die. Right. Right. And to add to that analogy just a little bit is when you have the sensation of needing to use the bathroom, that sensation doesn't ever go away. You can't suppress that sensation, right? Yeah, it's, not, it's happening. Not, right, right. Not yeah. true with emotions, though. So emotions are physical experiences. Emotions happen within this sack of skin that you call a body, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's where your emotions are. They are a physical sensation. Sack of skin. I like that. I I, I'm putting that on my mirror. I'm a sack Sorry. of skin. I'm a sack of skin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. right. Okay. Anyway, so right next go. to I'm not special. That, <laughs> right. I love it. Sorry. So, um, no, the, so like the, but emotions happen. It, they are, they're a physiological response. It is their neurons firing. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. And we can condition our neurology. We, we know this. There's research that shows that a person can suppress an emotional response. They can, their body can be trained to not even let those neurons fire. Things like suppressed rage or sadness. And we learn to do that because those emotions don't benefit us in any way. You know, as children, we get punished for being angry. Mm -hmm. Or if we start crying, we get told not to cry. Mm -hmm. So we can literally train our nervous system to not even let that well up. And so we've all done it before that, that kind of flood of tears starts coming to your face and you're in public and you're like, Nope, this isn't happening. And we just shove it down. And after doing that repeatedly, you can literally train your body to not feel that anymore. However, you, your body, like you mentioned, that doesn't mean that those hormones aren't being released. It doesn't mean that you're not having a response to it. You have just trained your system to not register it. Hmm. So 
you can see like there have been studies where um, people are put in situations where they, I, you know, normally or ideally would have a really strong emotional response, anger, sadness, things like that. They don't show the emotion. They don't experience the emotion, but you start measuring cortisol levels and adrenaline. It's there. It's just not being registered. Hmm. So that's cortisol. And cortisol's effect on the system is, is fascinating, right? There's, there's a huge physiological response that happens and it's a fight mm-hmm. or flight response governed by your autonomic nervous system. So when those chemicals hit your, your blood flow leaves your internal organs, goes to your extremities, right? Your eyes dilate, your, your senses heighten and you get ready to do something with that. Um, and when it's repeated over and over again, we start to see all sorts of problems and all sorts of disorders and all sorts of issues with that entire system. Right. Right. Um, chronic types of problems with those systems. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, if anything, I think, you know, high achieving, high performing people are, are, are such because they've learned at some point to be able to go towards discomfort, which I think Mm -hmm. is awesome. Right. It's an incredible skill, but also, we've learned to go towards discomfort while dissociating from the emotion that the discomfort can bring up. Right. right. And that seems to right. be the problem. Well, and that's right, exactly that social conditioning, right? There's no room for anger and sadness and um, anguish in our yeah. society. It's seen as weakness or it's seen like anger in particular. So, you know, we associate those things with violence, right. Um, being out of control, you know, those, those types of things. So, well, I remember working with with you and other practitioners, right? Just just this idea as I was trying to explore this emotional side of myself, right? Where they're like, "Why don't you try hitting your bed with a broomstick?" And I was like, "That's <laughs> ridiculous," you know. Like, of course, I'm not going to do that, right? Yeah. And, which is which is funny because it's two inanimate objects, right? A broomstick and a bed. Uh, I'm not hurting anybody or really anything, but it was so ridiculous to me. Like it took me forever to even try doing something like that. And now I feel like, you know, even though I'm still absolutely learning these things, right? I don't, I don't pretend to have mastery. That's the other funny part. The the mastery of this stuff is kind of not mastery, right? It's being Mm -hmm. able to kind of feel things. But what I've learned is that when we have that emotional response, right? And we go into fight or flight, unless our body completes the cycle, it gets stuck. Yes. Right? Yes, there has to be, it is, it's called a consumatory action. There has to be an action that completes the cycle and there's no exception. That action has to be a physical action, crying, screaming, running, um, laughing, hugging, uh, whatever it is, right? Because this is for all emotions. There has to be a consumatory action. Well, the point of an emotion, I would argue, is is a very social uh, point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, animals that aren't social don't really exhibit emotions. Right. We use it right. to try to connect with other people or to express how we feel, um, that kind of a thing. And I think that points back to that autonomic nervous system. Right. So we mm-hmm. have that ventral branch of the ventral um, of the vagal nerve and that responds to the social connection and social interaction. And so mm-hmm. if we have that response, that fight or flight response and we're triggered um, and we show the emotion in an effort to connect whatever that emotion is, it stimulates the ventral vagal nerve and completes the process to return us back to homeostasis, right? Right. If we don't, the body will get back 
you know, it, it'll yeah. get back to a state where you don't die because of a lack of nutrients to your internal organs. It just has to go via the dorsal vagal nerve. And that dorsal vagal nerve is disconnected, dissociated, and right. not social at all, right? Well, there's also a second piece of that too. So a couple of thoughts come to mind is number one, so emotions are information. They're telling you to do something. They're telling you that something needs to change or you need to act or, and very seldom do we stop and listen and ask them, what, what is this? Why do I feel this way? Like what, what's going on here? What's going on around me? What do I need to do here? Right. Mm -hmm. We just think, stop, stop, stop. I don't want to feel it. Calm down. I don't want to. No, no, no. We got to cheer. And, and, but this is also how we've been conditioned to socialize too, because the second piece of that, you know, when you talk about our emotions are kind of the basis for connecting with other people, what happens when we express emotions and people disconnect, mm. right? Yeah, what we're happens when right? I, exactly. What, what message do I receive? I used this example earlier when I get mad and people walk away or mm. I get sent to my room. What yeah. happens when I start crying and I can see how awkward and uncomfortable it's making other people, mm. you know? And so they, we, that's how we learn to emotionally regulate ourselves is by, is through facial expressions and watching other people's body language. And as a society, if everybody as a whole is kind of uncomfortable with all this stuff, we get really, really negative and invalidating messages about what it is to be human. And that's this is interesting. This is interesting because I, I, and I don't want to get too philosophical, but it seems like it's, it's an effect of chronic dissociation among the population, right? We end up, we end up so deeply dissociating from ourselves um, that that's the pattern that we learn, right? If there's an emotion, Mm -hmm. we disconnect from it whether that's yeah. for ourselves or whether that's for other people, right? And as a right. parent, I have right. young kids and um, I've been challenging myself to try to be there with them when they feel their strong emotions. And it's difficult for me, right? I, I find myself repeating mantras that I've learned from you and others of like, I see you, but I feel me. I see you, but I feel me. <laughs> because ultimately, if I don't, then when they have that uncomfortable emotion, I want to disconnect from it because it makes me right. uncomfortable. Right, right. We disconnect and we suppress, you know, and that's, you know, there's subtle differences there, but that even with the continued suppression of emotions, again, where we can literally train our nervous system to just not respond to certain situations or certain emotions, the, well, let's take depression, for example, depression is not synonymous with sadness. Depression literally means to push down right? So when we repeatedly suppress, 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 we repeatedly push down, that's when it becomes depression. Hmm. Depression, the opposite of depression is expression, right? hmm. When we're able to express emotion, joy, happiness, anger, whatever it is, right? Good or bad. Um, That and, and able to experience that full range and have other people who are there validating and holding that emotion with us, right? They're not walking away. They're not punishing us. Then we learn how, what, like, then we start learning how to regulate. Hmm. That's interesting. Because that's depression isn't, you know, that that's not the, 
that's not regulating or the absence of emotion. It's just repeated suppression. Hmm, fascinating. And that's, it's interesting because that's how um, people, you know, people close to me who've, who've described deep depression, that's how they've described it. It's not sadness, right? It's a lack of feeling almost anything mm-hmm. um, for them. Uh, yeah. And I love that, that expression is kind of the opposite of depression. Fascinating. So, so for those who are like, okay, I'm going to take this jump. And I feel like it's a jump, right? Being able to kind mm-hmm. of admit I need a little bit of help and mental health is stigmatized, you know, but being able to go and say, I need some help. I don't know what I don't know here. And I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, and they're doing cognitive behavioral therapy or they get get into the therapy world and they have a choice, I guess. What are some other options that they could consider or research besides cognitive behavior or in addition to cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. Um, So cognitive behavior therapy, obviously being the most prevalent form of therapy, but there are, you know, there are a lot of other therapies besides psychotherapy period. And there is, uh, art therapy. And by art therapy, I don't mean that's when your psychotherapist gives you a pad of paper and has you doodle on it. There are certified art therapists whose background is in art and expression. Um, there are things like dance therapy, right? Yoga therapy, um, psychodrama, which is where you use recreation and, and actual like reenactments, um, to explore family dynamics and trauma and, you know, relationship issues, things like that. Um, within the psychotherapy world, there are uh, a couple of other options too. one of which you have done yourself, which is EMDR. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, that is a form of therapy where you use bilateral stimulation to think through and challenge some of these negative thought processes, um, reprocess traumatic memories. Um, but it's also really helpful in, um, dealing with current triggering situations and kind of draining the intensity out of, out of reacting to current situations, as well as installing what they call installing future templates, which means introducing and building new neural pathways. Well, if I'm not responding this way, how do I want to respond, right? If I don't want to do things this way, how do I want to do them? So it's actually creating kind of this, it's using your imagination to install some different options for future, um, future situations. And there's, with the bilateral stimulation, I'll explain that a little bit. It's kind of a left, right, left, right, right? We walk bilaterally. We kind of like the hypnotist with the, with the watch looking yeah, the eyes yes. going back and forth. Okay, and it's but based not that. on, no, no, it's, it's very different from hypnosis in that you actually, the patient or the client is the whole point of it is that the client is there and aware of where they are and that they're with you in your office. They call it a dual awareness. So you keep them very grounded in the present moment while they recall maybe something that's happened from their past. And then the most um, research shows that the most effective type of bilateral stimulation is the, is with the eyes. That's something that you naturally do in your sleep to process information. It's rapid eye movement, right? REM sleep. Um, But there's a lot of different ways that you can uh, stimulate using bilateral. There's tapping, walking, 
um, you can do it with audio. So, well, it's interesting. I, I think um, one thing that all those things had in common, uh, from art, art therapy to yoga therapy to EMDR to all those other the, the other therapies that you mentioned, was that there was a physical component involved, yes. right? Yeah, it's not just addressing things mentally. And and when we say mentally, we mainly mean through the language centers of your brain, right? So right. it's not it's not right. even the entire brain. But when you do EMDR and the art therapy and other things, you're actually involving the body in the process. Yes. Right. And you're igniting other parts of your brain besides that prefrontal cortex. Right. Awesome. Like the, and, and generally you do that through movement. Mm. You have to do that through movement. And generally you're, you're revisiting the traumatic experience as you yeah. do those things. Right. And, and that's the part I think that's been really valuable for me um, is understanding that, right. Being grounded in both, that's the goal. You want to be grounded in both places. You want to be able to know when you're experiencing the trauma of the past, but so you can be ground and then be grounded in the present so that you can make a conscious decision of what your future looks like instead of reverting back to your conditioning over and over. Right. Right. Because that's to relive like uh, other, I mean, that's the definition of a flashback, right? Like we don't want to relive the experience. It was horrible enough the first time. So it's, let's take a look at this experience from the here and now, and maybe look at a couple of different ways of thinking about it. Um, and that bilateral stimulation, it very much, it, it just stimulates like the, the brain's natural ability to heal. I love how you said that, right? When we sleep, we have rapid eye movement. And mm-hmm. generally, are we not, aren't we dreaming during that time as well? Mm-hmm. When our eyes are moving and yeah. processing the events of the day in whatever random combinations they come up I mean, in. Yeah. I, well, I mean, that's, you know, the, the I had a dream. I was doing math homework last night, right? <laughs> it's been, that's I don't know how long it's been since I've done it. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> since I've, the, the, our next podcast episode will be on interpreting dreams. No, I'm right? just kidding. I'm, right? That's not my specialty. Um, but there are so many there, nobody really knows. I like, I have read so many different theories on why our bodies move and function bilaterally. There is just something about crossing that line of symmetry that our bodies love. Hmm. They love it. Yeah. It, it involves both, it involves both hemispheres. We know that. Yeah. Yeah. But there is, whether it's processing information or, you know, you see it all the time, people standing there in line or holding a, I've used the analogy with you before, holding a crying baby, we stand up and we sway back and forth. We bilaterally move. This is like our bodies just naturally do this to calm themselves. And um, the EMDR therapy specifically takes advantage of that in looking at and processing some really uncomfortable stuff. So, well, and I, I like, I like what you said, right? I like where you said, we just don't know. And there's so much that we just don't know, but what has come up again and again for me through this whole process is that if we use the machinery of the body, then generally we encompass yeah. all the stuff we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Right? Cause the yeah. body, who knows what's happening when we do our deep yeah. breathing or when we do our cold exposure, or when we do our rapid eye movement, we don't know what's going on, but we do know that we're using the machinery of the body. And quite honestly, isn't, isn't that the goal? Like, isn't that the goal right. of health to be able to use isn't the machinery that, of the body? Well, you know, I just, I, I, the thought just came to mind. Isn't that the, what if, what if the body already knows how to do this and we just have to 
get out of its take way. advantage of the systems that already exist. Uh, all these really, all, all these like primal, um, intuitive things that our bodies do without us even thinking about it. Like your body is way smarter than you are. Speaking <laughs> of it, I just got smarter. chills, right? Like there's yeah. my body communicating something to me. I yeah. love it. Yeah. April, thank you for your time today. Can we have you on later to talk about some of these other therapy Absolutely. modalities? Absolutely. Like I said, this is my passion. And a side note, Chase, I'm pretty impressed at how well you listen in therapy. This is look, some of it sunk in. <laughs> You're like he actually he actually paid attention. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, no, that's there fair. You go. It's only taken. There Who knows? See, how many your years? An intellectual manager has value. Like let's, <laughs> it, it, right? It, right? It does have value. That is yeah. At first, when you started talking about exiles and intellectual managers, I was like, thank you. Go. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. I appreciate that. I'll, I'm working on my four thousand hours. No, <laughs> you know, another <laughs> um, couple of things too, if you want to include this or not, obviously that's up, up to you, but is maybe, you know, mentioned from your personal experience with CBT, because that's where you started, right? When I started my work with you, it was cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. And you got stuck in a rut. Is totally. that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, because I was trying to use and I think people experience this a lot if your intellectual manager is your predominant form. But the problem is, is that you're trying to solve a problem with an area that there is, that the problem doesn't exist, right? It, exactly. It's, you're using the wrong tool. So I, I'm trying to, to connect to my body through an intellectual manager that I've pretty much only used to dissociate from my body. Right, right. So yeah, and I absolutely got stuck in a rut that way. You know, another, um, and I had I, to open I, myself up to like, like what I considered crazy. Cause it didn't yeah. make sense to my, uh, my so intellectual manager. Why don't, if you don't mind sharing, what was the catalyst for you? Cause I know that I spent a long time trying to talk you into all this <laughs> somatic stuff. Soma I know, let's like, define that word real quick. Okay. What's somatic mean? Somatic body, right? Body. Somatic okay. experience, anything with the body. Yeah. So April, um, when April we talk was yeah, yeah. You introduced me to like the breathing and the cold. Like you were right. kind of my first. Right. So and let's kind of, if you don't mind, like let's touch on a few things with, because it's not just EMDR. And, and I mentioned some other like creative expressive types of therapies. But then what's the next step after you get that? Like, where do you go after if one CBT, when you've gotten the benefits from that, it's you got to start somatic experiencing, right? That's the Somatic power. experiencing. And we know this, we know, we like, we know this, that it is breath work. It's mindfulness, right? Mindfulness is just shutting up and listening to your autonomic nervous system, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's using and pushing those systems kind of to the, not, I don't want to say to the edge, but it's exercising systems in your body that are already there, mm -hmm. your respiratory system, your ability to tolerate the cold, um, and you're like, uh, when I am, even the ability to to tolerate the cold is your body's, you're kind of like, uh, it's exposure therapy, right? It's mm -hmm. like, I'm going to, I'm going to get my body in a stressed out state and then fight that stress response. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't even say fight it. I'm going to notice it. I'm going to feel it. And then I'm going to choose to react differently. Right. Um, so it's becoming 
very aware of your somatic responses to stress. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I know how to do that is to put a person in a state of stress, a controlled state, and then say, notice that. Yeah. Notice what you want to do. Notice how uncomfortable it is. Right. Well, and that's the work. That's the, that's the building of the neuronic pathways. So for me, right. I was reinforcing as we were doing cognitive behavioral therapy, I was just reinforcing my frontal lobe, the part that I already spent most of my life reinforcing instead of the pathways that I had dissected and destroyed from myself. And so for me, that's really where the power of what if came into play. Right. And it was through repeated discussion and things, but it was what if, because what if is what if is intentionally accessing those areas of your brain where you don't know, you don't know, right? Yeah. It's opening yeah. yourself up to the possibility that there are other solutions that you aren't aware of that you just need to try and opening up, opening up yourself to the possibility that it's a tacit skill. It's not mm-hmm. something anybody can give me in the form of a pill, in the form of a medication, in the form of a meditation, right? It, mm-hmm. It's something I have to develop myself. And so that's, you know, you asked that question, what, what did it? And that was it. I, I asked what if, and then I tried it. And I think for my audience, you know, if, if you're here listening today, you're asking yourself that question. What if, mm-hmm. you know, what mm-hmm. if, what, what, what if therapy could help with my skin condition, my psoriasis, right? It's right. those kind of connections that I think is where the real magic can happen. That's where, that's where it happened for me. Yeah. But it has to be an embodied understanding. Mm -hmm. Your therapist um, is never going to have, and there's some little aha moments that happen in session. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But your therapist is never going to create the wisdom that comes with experiencing something yourself. I have no profound language or advice. You need, to be, you, you need to be writing with young Pueblo. I love it. I love it. Your therapist is never going to re- recreate the wisdom. That no, you can get from, I can. I, and I, I, you know, case in point, I spent several months trying to talk you into some of this <laughs> stuff, right? I'm like, just try it. Just try this. Just try this. Right. But it, and I, I can quote all the research I want. I can phrase it as our as eloquently as I can, but again, it's, it's not going to give you the experience, you know? And that's one of the, when we talked about the limitations of cognitive behavior therapy, where I noticed the gap is, is between thinking and doing. We want to stay thinking, but it's not until we do. And that do, like, it, there's just this, this jump, this leap, this, and I have to be willing to be uncomfortable. I have to be willing to try new things. It's the what if, right? Mm-hmm. And fear holds us back. It's, it's. Well, um, and I would say like fear and dissociation. I think that was helpful for me to understand too, was it's like, because to me with fear, I could like, I was like, I could, I can overcome fear. You know, like I've run, yeah. I've run million dollar companies before, right? I know how to yeah. overcome fear and have negotiations with, with huge corporations, right? Uh, but, what, but what I didn't understand. But it was I, fear that you could intellectualize. Right. Fear that you I could can solve the problem with my mind. Fear if, if you can manage it with, inte- with, with your, with thinking. Right. Then it's okay. If right. I can think my way out of this fear, then I'm okay. Right. <laughs> what if you can't think your way out of it? Then what happens? And that was the thing, right? With that dissociation, it was physically impossible. 
right? Yeah. Without recreating those connections. And that's where what if was magic. Because I said, what if, and I started to feel, I started to yeah. reconnect with my body. And once those neural pathways start to rebuild, I mean, I remember one day where I just sat there and sobbed and my wife's like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't know. You know, she's like, are you hurt? And I'm like, I don't think so. And, and through the course of the conversation, I, th- I was pretty much just like, I think I could just feel, you know, and it just yeah. felt like this, this, yeah. this, this cold, almost cold water running through my armpits and down my arms yeah. and through my body and just all these sensations. And honestly, I think there was just this little neuron, you know, as they try to seek each other out and it clicked That's and it was like, it. whoa, it's like, boom, there's yeah. your body. There Notice it is. That, there right? it is. And the great thing about it is that your body can tell you, like you said, the wisdom that your body has, no one else can provide that for you, right? Mm -hmm. I I, I use this as a symptom of our dissociation, but we all, we all walk around carrying water bottles, right? And we have timers set for how often we should drink water. Like how dissociated from our bodies are we to not trust that our bodies are going to say, Hey, you're thirsty. You know, that's a pretty critical thing for your body to do. Right. Not that I'm against water or drinking water. Right. But consider. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the dissociative piece, too, with cognitive behavior therapy is when all we want to do is talk, 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 think, think, think. That in and of itself is a dissociative. People dissociate, you know, in therapy, when you are doing cognitive behavior therapy, it is common that you dissociate from your body. You forget that I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in a therapy session and I've gotten up afterwards and my leg is numb because I've let, right. Cause I, <laughs> you haven't or, been paying attention to your body. Yeah. yeah. And I'm kind of like limping to the door cause I haven't <laughs> been paying attention to my body the whole time. I've just been trying, you know, and that's, but again, that's CBT is very much the gateway, but um in my experience, the healing happens with the, a, a somatic experience. There's another type of therapy. It's, it's called somatic experiencing, which is where you do breath work, um, posturing different. You just create different sensations in your body and just kind of notice what comes up. And like your experience, more often than not, you start expressing stuff. Emotions start coming up. Suddenly things are able to flow and move and you're able to sit with it and be okay with it, you know? Um, but that's also kind of explaining how the, yeah, how your nervous system works. That's it. So your nervous system serves two parts, right? Or two functions. One is to send messages from your brain to your body. And, you know, it creates efferent. very deliberate movement. What is that neurons. called? I know it's neurons, not, right? it's like not your, your autonomic nervous system. What is that called? Your somatic, I think it's called your somatic yeah. system. Anyway, so, but that consists, that makes up only 20% of your nervous system. 80% of your nervous system is responsible for sending messages from your body to your brain. Your body talks to your brain all the time, nonstop, your body is constantly screaming at your brain. And the dissociation is we often do it is we just stop listening to it. Well, and I I would suggest that that leads to the screaming, right? The more mm -hmm. we dissociate, the more it gets louder, right? Yeah. And then it starts throwing some serious symptoms at you. Right. Until (laughs) suddenly, you know, suddenly our leg is numb or, you know, and we can't walk or, our stomach is upset or our back hurts so bad that it's just screaming in pain, then we'll stop and listen to it. But it's constantly sending these messages. Anyway, our body talks to our brain way more often than our, than our brain talks to our body. 
And the term that's often used with somatic, any type of somatic therapy is you treat from the bottom up. Mm. Cognitive behavior therapy relies on that 20%, mm. right? Which is treating from the top down. Somatic, any type of somatic therapy relies on what your nervous system already does, which is talking to your brain. You change your brain by moving your body. Hmm. I have a good analogy. I'm I'm a fly fisherman. I love to fly fish, right? And when people look, see fly fishing, they, they see usually that dry fly on top of the water, the fish comes up and eats, right? But then uh, eventually I learned in my process that fish actually eat 80% or 90% under the surface of the water. And so if you want to catch fish, sometimes you can catch them with a dry fly on top of the water, but you're going to have a lot more success if you fish in the water column, because that's where they are, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting analogy here, where if you want to address more of the issue, then go to where 80% of the neurons are, and they're in your body. Right. Go to where your emotions are. Your emotions are in your body. Yeah. Yeah. They're in your face, in your throat, they're in your heart, they're in your stomach. Yeah. Awesome. That's where it is. Awesome. April, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So now that, uh, now that we've thoroughly um, entertained all of your intellectual managers out there, get out there and do some breathing, get out there and yeah. do some cold. Like what if, what if that can make a difference in your life? Reconnect to your body today and reconnect to people that you love. Thanks for listening. Thanks, April. Thank you. Thank you.